Welcome to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth. I'm an intimacy coach and psychologist. I created this show to explore the erotic alphabet, to help you learn more about desire and expressing your desires, discover ways to spice up your relationship and create that sizzling relationship you've always wanted. I do this through solid science, real life stories, and interviews with an exciting variety of sex experts. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies to help you create your ideal sexual life. Make sure you join us to access even more sexual strategies on my blog, A to Z of Sex. Access our monthly newsletter with subscriber only offers at www.atozofsex.com. That's A T O Z O F S E X. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the A to Z of Sex. I'm Dr. Lori Beth, an intimacy coach and psychologist, and I am your host. We are working our way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. Today, the letter is E, and E is for erotomania. Erotomania is defined as excessive sexual desire. It can also be used to refer to someone who holds a delusion that someone else is either in love with her or obsessively attracted to her. Now I'm using the term her advisedly because it's about a three to one ratio of women to men who suffer from this. Today I have with me Dr. Kevin Boileau, psychoanalyst and philosopher to speak on this topic. I'm glad to have you here, Dr. Boileau. Thank you, Dr. Lori. Um, This is quite a pleasure. I'm of course in Montana in the United States. It's very rainy today and I'm up here in the mountains and I think you're across the ocean uh, to the east so it's a it's an absolute pleasure to be here today. I'm glad you've joined me. So this is an area you have quite a bit of experience with. Um, I'd love you to talk to the listeners about your understanding of erotomania. Well look, in, uh, speaking in a very simple way it is just it's an affliction that just drives everybody around this person nuts um, and precisely because they're they're out of touch with reality they have and, and you can imagine if you've ever known anybody who you felt uh, was out of touch with reality they have uh, a belief system or, or a constellation of belief systems that might be extremely coherent and they might be very intelligent they might have uh, just an amazing story to tell. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is that it's, it's just not connected to reality as everybody else sees reality. Um, what's, what's also very interesting historically that this affliction is sometimes called Clarembeau's syndrome. Clarembeau, the, the early 20th century French uh, psychoanalyst, uh, studied this this affliction and it, and it really is an affliction. Um, I, what I'd like to do today, if we have enough time, is to talk just a little bit about how uh, a clinician might view this affliction, uh, how we can see it more from an existential perspective mm-hmm. and, and also from uh, a, a European psychoanalytic uh, perspective. It, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, problem, uh, and and before I I speak with a little more uh, uh, 
say, uh, scientific terminology, I just want to say that if, if you've ever been <clears throat> associated with or been involved with somebody who has an affliction like this, you suffer too because <laughs> there's a drivenness uh, to this disorder that propels this person daily. It's, it's obsessional. It, it's, they don't get any kind of relief from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they wake up in the middle of the night with, with, um, with this disorder. So I, I like to first frame it um, as a, a form of a delusional disorder. Can you, um, can you define delusional for the listeners? Because I'm not sure how many people know what a delusion is. Okay, so a delusion means a person can't tell what is real from what is imagined. Mm -hmm. They have a belief system uh, where they, uh, and, and in fact, what's interesting is that some of their beliefs about the world can be very accurate, and very reality-based. Mm -hmm. So they know how to drive on the right side of the road. They know how to get to the store. Uh, they might have a job, and they might be able to hold a job. Um, although lots of people with delusional disorders end up losing their jobs, because in this one area mm -hmm. of their life, there, there is a delusion. Um, so, and, and that's the point, they, they can appear um, you know, very normal mm -hmm. um, in most of their life activities. So, uh, there are different types of delusional disorders. There's, there's um, the persecutory, mm -hmm. where a person believes they're being persecuted. And a lot of times these people end up suing the government um, and really making a mess out of their life. There's the, the jealous delusional disorder. The grandiosity is another form of this disorder. And then there's erotomania. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not an across-the-board delusion. And that's, that's important, I think, to understand. So <clears throat> uh, the word eros is at the root of erotomania. Eros meaning the seat, of, coming from the Greeks, it's the seat of our life energy. And it's often um, in, in 20 and 21st century misinterpreted as sexuality. There's obviously a close link between uh, eros and, and sexuality, meaning mm -hmm. genital copulation. So, uh, and then the word mania um, or uh, the related word manic. Mm -hmm. uh, means to go crazy. And this again comes from the Greek. So it means to go crazy uh, with regard to one's life energy or one's eros. And in certainly in our discussion, um, it, it has m more to do with sexuality and romantic love. Uh, the, the other thing that, that people should know uh, about this, this disorder is that often... Uh, people don't feel well, right? Their, their overall uh, health is compromised. Mm -hmm. They might end up in the doctor's office more often. They might have a related somatic disorder. Um, it's possible that part of this is genetic. Hmm. Uh, it's po possible that part of this is environmental, and I'll speak to that in just uh, a minute. Uh, but it's, it's a very serious affliction. Um, and what the way it usually comes to presence is that the victim uh, or victims of, of this person usually end up getting restraining orders. Right. Because, because they're being hounded. And, and nowadays with the internet, 
Um, they're hounded by email, text, phone, social media. And in some cases, the disorder becomes so strong, like, for example, in Hollywood, uh, that they start stalking. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, it becomes, um, it, it's, well, in the beginning, it starts from uh, low-lying pursuit, but it becomes really serious. Uh, so, for example, somebody as famous as Kim Kardashian, who's a very beautiful person, um, might be um, uh, the recipient right. of a person with this disorder. And eventually, um, they're going to stalk uh, Miss Kardashian and, and, and really uh, cause her a great deal of harm in her life. And so people like that usually get a restraining order, uh, and, and it actually doesn't stop them. Um, that's... That's, I think, something that's that's really uh, important to understand. They they don't stop. They have to be stopped. They don't stop so that, because the, they don't stop because they don't believe in the validity of the order. They don't believe in it. Be, right. It it becomes in their in their uh, conscious field. The restraining order against them means absolutely nothing. What what they would say to themselves or to others is. Um, oh, you know, the, the judge isn't getting it. The judge isn't seeing the reality for what it is. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting because they have a, they have, often they, they're very, they have very active minds. And so they can tell any kind of story they want. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're able to explain away um, the fact that the cops keep showing up at their house or that suddenly they're in jail. Right. Uh, or possibly they're in a, they're in a hospital of some kind. So let, let me, if I may, just kind of move move into the more interesting features of this because it is a delusion. A, a lot of this <clears throat> can be explained if you take a Lacanian psychoanalytic point of view. A lot of this can be explained by early childhood uh, imagination mm-hmm. and images and proto thoughts, proto cognitions. And, and it's really, I'll give you an example. Uh, sometimes when, when we're children and sometimes in life, we have, we have an experience that's very little. Uh, it might be, um, uh, might have to do with a certain sense like smell or mm-hmm. sight. It might be something about, you know, dad coming home from work. It might be a moment in the kitchen on a Sunday. But the point is, is that it's, there's no narrative attached to it at all. It's just a sensory experience. Okay. Um, and it's attached to an existential experience in consciousness, and it carries with it some kind of erotic or sexual uh, potency or sexual valence uh, or sexual heat in some way. And those... And, and stop me if, I'm, if, if you need to ask a question. Well, I don't... I'm I, just, think, I think... For people who are listening who don't have um, experience in in um, psychology or um, or even philosophy, when you say what you're saying is that this experience doesn't have a story with it, so it isn't it isn't um, dad came home and this happened. It's it's a sensory experience, so um, attached to some form of meaning. Yeah, it, and it, it gets buried 
in in consciousness somewhere, perhaps in the unconscious, if you believe in the unconscious. Mm-hmm. But it has agency, so yeah. it has action potential to it. It has okay. fuel. It has lots of fuel. And yeah. So another way of talking about it is that we all have early childhood experiences, uh, fragmented experiences. You know, when we're when we don't really even have language. Right. And then when we do have language, our language is is not very sophisticated. So, but when you say meaning, um, there there is a meaning attached, but but it's a proto meaning because, right. for example, if somebody who's a year old or three years old doesn't have the capacity to generate very much meaning. So, so it's operating as. Um, uh, as a force, I, yeah, that and that's what I was looking for. So it's not we're not meaning is in terms of um, something that I can explain in words, but actually operating as an energetic force, and that's that's the power, right? And and so this explains the drivenness, perhaps, mm-hmm. because in this obsessional state, <coughs> a person with erotomania. I'm speaking of the person with, with the affliction uh, itself, uh, in which they believe that, and this is the classic definition: they believe that another person loves them, mm-hmm. or is in love with them, and and wants to be with them. And and so there's a, a very powerful drivenness or um, obsession. So it, it doesn't go away. You, you don't turn it off. Mm-hmm. And, and this, this is something really important for, for your listeners because uh, it, you can see the suffering involved. Mm-hmm. There, there's, what they do is they lose the space of freedom, transcendence, or the, the freedom to make choices. Mm-hmm. They, they lose the capacity to sit back and reflect mm-hmm. on what they're thinking and what they're doing. And so they're, another way of speaking of it is that they're hijacked. Mm-hmm. So some people might say structuralists would, would say we're language speaks through us, right? We're we're little playthings of language. In in this disorder, we're the playthings of the disorder. It, we're like puppets, right? And and that's really, uh, it's very sad. A lot of these people end up in court, um, making their story to a judge. Uh, and in fact, I am uh, privy to a, such an event yesterday where a person with a related kind of delusional disorder is trying to convince the judge in a case that the judge is all wrong. Mm-hmm. The person of great authority who we should you know, respect, uh, and, this, and this person with this related disorder is trying to convince everybody that, that their way of thinking about the world uh, is wrong. So... So that's one important concept is, is for everybody to really consider that, that it does come from a set of fragmented images that carry a lot of power, but where we don't really understand them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and, and this is really the disheartening or disappointing part of the affliction, um, there's no real treatment for that. Be, be, it's really, really difficult to reassimilate those images in, a, in an adult-like meaning structure. Because you can't, Precisely be, you can't unpack them. You can't unpack them. Um, 
but you, you can understand them in a different sort of a way. You can understand them in the way of, gee, if I, if I do these sorts of things, everybody's going to gang up on me. Right. So, but that's not, that's not actually combating the, the delusion. That's saying, I, I still believe this delusion. This is, uh, this is my truth. But I've now learned that if I do certain things and say certain things, I'm going to get into trouble. Right. And, and one, one of the treatments is psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. uh, but most people with these, uh, with erotomania or any kind of delusional disorder just simply won't go to psychotherapy. Yeah. And, and even if they do, they won't stay. They'll leave. Um, some folks end up with a psychiatrist and they're, they're prescribed um, some kind of a, a antipsychotic. There's all kinds of antipsychotics on the market uh, because it, it, there is a psychosis involved. At, at least, if you want to understand it from a, a say, a neuropsychological mm -hmm. point of view, which I think in some ways is important. From an existential point of view, which I think is also very fascinating, um, these are people who have engaged in uh, really profound strategies of self-deception. Mm -hmm. And and they're doing it for a reason. And and I think that in some ways is the most imp important part of our interview. You know, what would be the reason that Why? a person would engage in self-deception to this level? Yeah. Why why are they trying to convince not only themselves but the world? Cuz they really are trying to convince the world. Um uh, of this belief that they have. So, so I don't mean to be too serious in our interview, but so we can talk about erotomania in a, um, a kind of a street level as, as an over, as applying to, to an oversexed person, somebody who's just, um, who spends a lot of their life thinking about sex or sexuality, um, or we could think about the actual disorder. I mean, I so, think, What's interesting to me is is that both have the obsessiveness to them. So the disorder has the delusion. But but here's the here's the difference. And and a person with the actual disorder, they ruin their life. Right. They everything about their they actually usually lose a job. They don't at some point they don't work. They lose important relationships. They end up being really isolated. Mm-hmm. And suffering twenty four seven alone, mm -hmm. a person with with erotomania um, who's not afflicted by that disorder. So we're going to use the word in a completely different sense. Mm -hmm. This might complicate things for the listeners, but somebody who's who could be characterized as being a erotomaniac, uh, um, it, it might actually be somebody who's really healthy, right? Who's who, who wants to reinterpret Eros. Because mm -hmm. right now, Eros is primarily interpreted in terms of capitalism and production and uh, the bourgeois society. In other words, there's a really tight algorithm for people to live uh, as normal people. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem with that is we're seeing in, in mental health in America uh, uh, a growth of afflictions that come from, I think, a misinterpretation or perversion of eros. In other words, a healthy way to be sexual. People are repressed. Mm -hmm. People suppress themselves. They, they don't want to be sexual in ways that please them because it's somehow wrong. 
-hmm. they end up in a superego position. So that form or of the or that type of use of the word erotomania um, actually speaks to a person who's breaking out of these shackles. Um, and that that person uh, probably has a really good job, probably has healthy relationships. Uh, they're probably physically healthy. So we want to always be careful how we use the distinction in, in terminology. So would you say um, then that, that that's a person who is simply spending a lot of their their life energy thinking about sex, pursuing sex, um, pursuing sexual and romantic relationships? Yes, but for the right reasons, uh, because because it's pleasing, because it's uh, it's creative, mm -hmm. um, because it actually is a life enhancing uh, activity. And then in that case, you're defining the term as actually something. Um, in, in some ways, it's an attempt to make something negative that actually could be a positive. So you've got the disorder. No question about it. So if, if if I was so then that's it's interesting because I've had clients recently ask me what's too much sex, what's too much focus on sex. Right, and 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 one one easy answer is to say, well, is it hurting any other part of your life? Right. You know, and that that's the litmus test. I think. I also believe that it it might be a good idea to to start coining or making up new words that describe a person who's reinterpreting Eros uh, in a positive and healthy way. Mm -hmm. um, because the term erotomania has, has some really negative baggage uh, from the early t uh, 20th century, it, it might actually be good to start thinking of a new term. Um, and I think that's always important uh, when we want to grow, uh, either personally or culturally, is to start thinking of new language. And new words. I would agree with that. I mean, it, it's one of the reasons it's so interesting to me is because we do spend a lot of time pathologizing people who have sex lives that are outside the well. People, we say the norm, but it isn't really the norm anymore. Um, but the, the what is supposed to be, what is defined by many religious groups as the appropriate way to have a sex life. And so we spend a lot of time pathologizing that and using the term erotomanic is in that sense is pathologizing. If the person is healthy and they are um, able to manage the other parts of their life, but they have a very strong sex drive and they're working at fulfilling themselves. It, it, it seems it would be better to use a different term. Yeah. So let's unpack the word pathologize. In, in philosophy, it means to, to focus on negative dialectics mm -hmm. or the negative, yep. that, that there's something wrong with this person. And, and I like to think about it in terms of, of resentment, of the story that Nietzsche told. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that when people are, are disempowered, they, they have a psychological problem with people who are not. Yep. So if I have a problem in my own sexuality for whatever reasons, physical, emotional, or otherwise, then when I see somebody out there having fun, being very sexual, I, I resent it because for whatever reason, I'm not allowing myself to do that. And so in order to survive it psychologically, I pathologize their behavior. Mm -hmm. I say that there's something wrong with them. 
and I think that that we find we can all see together all all listeners here that um, there is a tendency in in most civilizations um, to to shoot out of the sky the person who's having too much fun. True, indeed. To bring people down. Yeah. So somebody, and, and there are people now um, in, who I know who are having lots of fun sexually. And they're very creative and they're trying things that, you know, their parents would never have approved of, things, um, activities that most people don't even understand. Mm-hmm. And they find it very life enhancing. It also enhances their their work. Mm-hmm. They're able to, to do better work, whatever their work is. But part of the problem is that those those forms of sexuality where boundaries are tested, limits are tested, um, are, they create anxiety uh-huh. in 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 most of the culture. So, so that's why there's always a, a tendency to to want to you know diagnose somebody as having a problem when in fact they really don't. And whereas um, I'm aware of time at the minute, so it, I mean, in terms of pulling it together for me, the person that we just were discussing initially, the true person suffering from erotomania, is somebody who actually is living quite a miserable life. This disorder is a disorder because it makes it impossible for them to do anything in the rest of the other areas of their lives. Eventually it takes over. Um, It has a negative impact on the other areas of their lives versus the more general definition is actually could be somebody and most likely is somebody who is rather than um, unhealthy is in fact healthy and is just pursuing fulfillment in as many different ways as possible. And that this is life enhancing, not only in their romantic relationships and their sexual relationships, it can be life enhancing in terms of the work that they do, presumably because they have more eros just in general, when you're talking of that as a life force. The suggestion that I would give anybody and anybody who's listening to your show is that uh, we can take risks. We can take small chances with our erotic impulses. They don't have to be big risks. Mm-hmm. They can be small risks. And we can allow ourselves to think about, to feel, and to experience, imagine, uh, say, imaginary sexual experience, which is always at the beginning of, you know, really acting in the world. Mm-hmm. And an erotic mania um, is a word that can describe a person who's willing to consider uh, taking small risks um, in life-enhancing ways. That's a gr- to me, that's a great way of inviting people to explore further. Um, I'd like it if you would tell the listeners a little bit more about where they can find you if they wish to consult you um, or, and or some of the things that you're doing at the moment. That might be of interest. I'm I'm actually doing a lot of work uh, in the topic of violence. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that violence uh, is is a place where people go when they're not experiencing a happy, healthy, creative, and sexual life. We become anxious. We become disappointed. 
stressed, and then in some way, in some way violent. So I'm doing a lot of work on violence. Uh, people can find me at a website, episworldwide.com, E-P-I-S, worldwide.com. Contact me through there, uh, and I'd be happy to, to help folks out in any way that, that they need. And um, are you appearing anywhere in the, um, in the near future? Uh, my, my understanding is that I'm doing a, a television show on violence uh, next Thursday for ABC Fox News in Montana. I, I, I'm not sure exactly when this is going to show. Um, and uh, that's, that's probably the most immediate. I, I think I'm actually speaking in Amsterdam on uh, the politics of, of uh, animal rights. Um, which might not seem relevant or related, but it's very, it's very related uh, to our states of alienation that we put ourselves into mm-hmm. um, and ways to break through, just like this discussion here, which, which I think is very uh, helpful, and I really appreciate you having me on the show. Thanks. I'm glad you're here with me. Thanks so much for being with us this week. I hope you will all join us next week for the letter F on the A to Z of sex. You can write in with your questions, and they'll be aired on the show, to Dr. Lori Beth at a to z of sex.com. That's A-T-O-Z or Z-O-F-S-E-X.com. And please come and visit the website. In the meantime, I hope you have a hot and sexy week, and I look forward to seeing you all soon. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the A to Z of sex. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review here on iTunes and make sure you head over to www.atozofsex.com. That's A-T-O-Z-O-F-S-E-X. To subscribe to my free newsletter to help you keep your sex life sizzling. Stay tuned for upcoming weekly episodes as we work our way through the sexual alphabet to discover the wide world of sex, sexuality, desire, and intimacy. Knowledge gives you the power to create relationships that bring you satisfaction and joy. Hope to see you next week.